Hey everyone, you are listening to Radio Oedipus, the podcast all about the culture of beer, brought to you by Oedipus Brewing. Welcome to the show. If you are a first-time listener, I do recommend you check out some of our previous shows for explorations into art, fermentation, home brewing, and snack bar culture, to name a few, by searching Radio Oedipus on your podcast app. You can find more information over on our website, oedipus.com forward slash radio. On today's show, around the table, I was joined by Bas Visser, beer sommelier at Oedipus, and my guests were Jan and Erkan from Butcher's Tears, a brewery based here in Amsterdam. I was interested to find out how it all began and how they placed themselves within the beer world. They make extremely interesting beers, so I was excited to get them on the show. We also talk about a beer by Boundary Brewing. I call another Jan to talk about what's in his fridge, and there's also the quiz. So, let's get going. I am happy to be joined by Bas Visser, my co-host for the day and the beer sommelier here at Oedipus. How are you today, mate? Yeah, very good again. Good, good. I'm happy uh, to be here with uh, Butcher's Tears. Yes, so like Bas just Sorry. said, our <laughs> guests... No, no, you're welcome. Our guests for the day are uh, two members of the Butcher's Tears crew. We've got Aircom, one of the founders, and Jan, who's been involved from the start. Um, yeah, there or thereabouts, he's not sure. But <laughs> How are you both doing? Are you doing well? So far, yeah. So far, okay. Well, thanks for making the way to Amsterdam North you're, on this. You're that afraid? Miserable uh, Tuesday evening. Um, yeah, Butcher's Tears. I first came across Butcher's Tears when I first moved to Amsterdam, and I was really struck about how you maybe had a different attitude compared to a lot of the other breweries I was seeing in Amsterdam. Um, yeah, and also your kind of but kind of a balance between art and beer I felt that you were doing I, I came for a concert I think that was the first time I made it to the brewery I really liked this kind of raw attitude you had going on and then concert in the brewery yeah behind it the one uh in the in the south you had the you got the concert space space at the back I thought it was really really cool I really really liked what you were doing and since then I've Found more about your beer. I was uh, I realized that it was meant to be Pivo Fest this weekend, and uh, I was very gutted that that had to be cancelled. So uh, yeah, just welcome, welcome on the show. It's good to have you here. Thank you. Good. All right, we're going to kick off with a beer review, and I've brought a beer by Boundary Brewing Cooperative from Ireland, from Belfast in Ireland. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you want to uh, kick us off with this, Bass? Yeah, of course. The do name want... is called. Your joke is factually incorrect. Here you go. <laughs> Here's the can. You open it and you pour one for yourself. All right. So we we share one uh, then. Yeah. Right. All right. A black lager, Schwarz beer. This is a Schwarz beer, a dry, slightly roasty, toasty black lager. That's what it's saying on the back. Yeah. So the reason I chose this beer was. Yeah, I had a couple of beers on the mind for why I was why I was choosing it. I was actually going to bring a classic. I was actually going to bring uh, Schenkelar's, uh, one of their Rauch beers. But I thought, no, let's bring something new. And uh, I discovered these guys. And I thought uh, a Schwarz beer maybe suited you guys. So let me know what you think. Definitely very dark. Right. Join me, please. Of course, if you're curious what you all have taste. Good slurping already. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all about the sound effects. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that works, right? Yeah, exactly. Definitely some coffee uh, aroma on the nose I get. 
Yeah, but really subtle. It's not like a uh, stout or anything. And also some barley notes or some malts. Do you have anything else? The glass is too small for this kind of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. I should have supplied some uh, pint glasses. <laughs> I always like to think about beer, like how it kind of travels through the mouse. You know, like how it starts, how it begins, yeah. and then like over five, ten second kind of yeah, yeah, goes yeah. deeper or maybe doesn't or, you know, how it kind of opens or shuts down. Yeah. It's like a kind of, you know, it's like a kind of composition in the yeah, mouth. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, I used to draw graphs for a lot of beers usually. Yeah, like, really? Uh, yeah. And um, I don't know, I guess. Uh, what would rash, the shape of this graph be? I would say kind of reminds me of, you know, a, a diagram of if you look at COVID cases in Britain, from February till now, <laughs> you know, it's like kind of slowly starting, but then, you know, very quickly. And then it fell a little peaking. bit and then peaked around less. Yeah, but then, you know, on a, on a plateau level, like continuing yeah, until yeah. quite deep in the mouth. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So. That's good that it's, at least it's got a long-lasting uh, uh, taste. <laughs> yeah. I'm sticking around. There's some sours? No, not like 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 a Berliner Weisse, but it definitely has sours. Mm. And a bit of this sour coffee... Flavors, bit of the the single origin coffee vibes. Yeah, when you're uh, tasting a beer, it should kind of happen in different places in the mouth, shouldn't it? I remember we uh, when uh, we did a tasting with uh, Willem from Heineken. He said that like it's the beginning of the mouth, and then mouthfeel is in the cheeks, and then there's tasting at the back of the tongue. Am I right in saying this, or well, it should kind of sing in different parts of the mouth? I think you also have mouthfeel in the tip of your tongue, so in that way i wouldn't say it's true but of uh of course you have several uh, in, in in every area there's happening something else and i think the cheeks if it's super dry that's actually the place where you notice it the most uh, okay that's what i uh, at least have i think that's usually also why it's so difficult to talk about as beers that we rarely have like schwarzbier i mean mm. how many how many schwarzbiers did we ever had like i mean i had quite a few but still it's not really it's a that I have an archetype of a Schwarz beer or yeah. his own mind. And, um, but I think that's also what these beers, these kind of beer, different beer types, makes them so different as like, you know, they have really different ideas of how they or where they taste or how they kind of develop. Yeah. So usually we describe beers with like flavors or aromas. That's what you smell. Yeah. And that's maybe how it feels. But it's, it's very hard to kind of distinguish different beer types by that, I mean, you know that yeah. as well, reading beer reviews, if you just look at the words people put down there, you, you wouldn't know often if it's a stout, uh, black IPA, if it's a 4% yeah. Irish stout or, you know, what it is. So um, I think there's a lot to be said about this kind of, you know, how a beer kind of feels in the mouth, how it develops. How it... Yeah. Uh, it, it's way more complex than just flavors. Yeah, I fully agree. But but still, I do recognize it as a Schwartz beer, even without... Having hundreds of Schwarz beers, or I wouldn't call it a stout because it really is, has this thin body, uh, and it's also not so dry as a dry stout. <laughs> so what? It's kind of confusing though. The the uh, beer though, right? It says black lager, and then also on the can it says this is the Schwarz beer. Like what? Schwarz beer is actually an, a bottom fermented beer with dark malts, which give the flavor and the color. Okay. And I always see this a bit of the, the German example or the German answer. I don't know who was first, but uh, to uh, the English. 
Okay. With uh, where stout. they have the stout. Okay. All right. Or the porter. Well, Germany also has. A, I actually don't know much about it, but Erkan might know more. And Germany also has a quite a <laughs> quite even though faded tradition of uh, porters, which is more like the classical DDR East German uh, porters. But then I wouldn't really know the differentiates. Do they still exist? Well, there's for sure a few, very few, very local yeah, yeah. interpretation, and then maybe some new, new versions. But um, I wouldn't really know how Schwarzbier and a East German porter. Pretty vague. <laughs> These kind of things in general. Yeah. I don't think people <clears throat> back in those days even considered beer types at all. They just made beer. They yeah, just went made for, beer. for the whatever flavor, I suppose. They yeah, yeah. And yeah, and the mouthfeel. And... But there's something, I mean, it's uh, interesting to look at it because you're just doing this kind of comparison that, um, I mean, Black lager, it's like this kind of black lager and Schwarzbier and you have in Czech, you also have like the Chernipivo, the, well, dark, dark lagers or um, how you want to translate it. We always kind of translate the words literally into another language, Schwarzbier, black lager, and somehow they turn in each language. It's like Thai food and Thai food in Britain or Indian food in Britain, British curry. Yeah, it's Tex-Mex. very, very it's different. Kind of like, uh, it's exactly. kind of how it's developed into yeah. a modern style. I know what you mean. And I guess that's also what you see very often with um, yeah, modern breweries or current breweries um, doing takes on what they consider classic beers. It's this um, reinterpretation going on. Yeah. You reinterpret it through your own lens of brewing, through your own technical setups, mm-hmm. but also through your customers, you know, yeah. or like your drinkers. Yeah. Paying attention to what the audience wants to drink a little bit. So maybe if it was called the Schwarzbier, it would have maybe seemed like a too much of a traditional style of beer. So black lager maybe sells better to a craft beer community. And might, yeah, and also people might understand it because it's it's from Ireland, right? Yeah. Yeah, so people in Ireland might not even understand uh, a Schwarzbier because they simply don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah, not because they're stupid, but <laughs> because it's uh, just uh, a black lager is really it it it, it appeals. You know, it's really yeah. clear what it is. Yeah, bottom fermented, and it's uh, well, it's kind of black. It's very black, <laughs> really deep black color. I would say it's good. I like it. It's balanced, easy drinking. I could definitely drink a pint of it, which is probably more commonly served in Ireland as well. And these little tasting and Germany, Germany as well, and Germany as well. It's, it's actually served in a big can. We just uh, made the mistake of not buying four. Well, I mean, let's be precise here. Germans would never drink a pint, huh? No, uh, yeah, yeah. They drink a half a liter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually four four hundred forty milliliters, but still, <laughs> there's just been going on a little um, little uproar in the southern German uh, classical beer scene. Yeah, as one of the classical brewers through the need of coronavirus and the shutdown of bars and so decided to can the beer. And I mean, the only mobile canning lines that are available are suited to 44 centiliters, <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. and not the 50 centiliters. So, you know, everybody was rolling their eyes, you know, modern hipster craft brewer, you know, <laughs> putting a classic German Keller beer into like 44 centiliter cans. <laughs> Where's the leftover 60 uh, milliliter? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so um, finish it off, yeah. So the can's very beautiful, you don't think? I think it's very... Uh... Yeah, it looks like a river 
It's like a marble or, painting. Yeah, almost. something like that, or or a, a, a satellite image, but then in pink, blue, gray. Yeah, I really like these kind of things. Yeah, a bit of the oil style and the cloud water esque as well. Cloud water style, yeah. I'm seeing on the back here. It says it's a cooperatively owned brewery. Yeah. You know anything about it? So, yeah, I did a bit of research and it says that they have uh, members that they all kind of pay to be a part of it. I don't know much more than that, but it's definitely a different way of running a brewery compared to having shareholders or just an owner. And I think that could have been a way of how they got started, got their feet upon the ground. But, yeah, it's maybe a bit more of a cooperative. Maybe there is a, a small group of them that all own it. There's pros and cons of running a cooperative. You have more power and you have to have a, a collective group of people making decisions. But, yeah, it's quite difficult to uh, make sure everyone's singing off the same hymn sheet. Maybe it's a little a bit like Brewdog as well. They also have this idea of several investors, right? Or Yeah, but maybe no, they think this is for also, real. <laughs> also, a cooperative is meant to have everyone has different roles, but they all okay. have very similar stake, stakes in it. Mm. So whereas like maybe I think Brewdog are maybe too big to have this going on a little yeah, bit, yeah, but yeah. everyone has a very similar share and everyone has the same, uh, yeah, everyone has the same stake in it. So yeah, it's, I think there are pros and cons to a cooperative, but I'm not sure much about how they run it. Uh, but yeah, okay, we'll uh, we'll move on. Yeah, super nice beer. Good beer. Yeah, and feel free to help yourself to other. We have got other beers on the table, and uh, there is a Butcher's Tears beer on the table as well. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit. But uh, yeah, thanks again to, for joining us. It's been. Uh, I'm a big fan of yours, so I was really happy to when you agreed to come on the show. And a lot is said about how Butcher's Tears is a place where art and beer is combined. Was that a conscious decision from the start? Well, I mean, um, before Butchers kind of took the shape, it has now as a brewery. Felicia, who started the brewery with Aircon together mm -hmm. in 2011. Felicia and me used to run an art space in Amsterdam West in Barcelona. Mm -hmm. And um, while it was an art space or maybe a bar, it was a bit of a fluid space. <laughs> it was not fully defined purposely in what it was. The fixed format was that every Thursday evening, let's say between 7 and midnight, usually 2 o'clock but midnight, um, we would be open and we would screen experimental film, art house, but mostly experimental film and uh, video on the house wall opposite. So quite big for the most neighborhood to see. Cool. And um, there was quite a diverse uh, movies from like, early 30s, early 40s, experimental film, animation to very recent uh, movies or short videos that would just loop then all overnight. Sometimes it would be just 20 second videos, just it would be looping, or it would be one half hour experimental films, just colors flashing in and out, kind of illuminating the neighborhood. And we had a small bar in the back and we started with the idea that we wanted to yeah, take control a little bit and uh, maybe build something from the ground up. Think about the concept of what, what is the bar, what's the space, how do we do things as an individual coming together, organizing something. Something so we said we would uh, work only with small breweries. And yeah. uh, we had a selection probably of 10 to 25 different beers. We would drive around the Netherlands just picking up beers which we thought 
were good from small breweries and would stock some. And um, Which were some of those breweries? Well, our house beer in the beginning was Christopher Blunt, which um, back in the day, you know, in its glory days, it was a days. lovely beer. It's still around and it's not the same no more. Um, but it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, also um, a full beer, you would call it in German, I guess. It's, uh, it's not from the Netherlands, right? It is. It used to be. It's. Yeah. Uh, it's no, I might be mistaken that it was started by the part owner of Buddles in the 80s okay. as a side project for right. actually making a better beer. Um, but yeah, it was absolutely fantastic open fermented you know? uh, lager beer. And um, it kind of fell off the cliff in 2013 through some economic changes. Uh, but yeah, that was our house beer, two euros, and uh, we ran through crates <laughs> like no one else in North Holland. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so it was like a big mystery in the Netherlands who always bought all these crates in North Holland because we bought them kind of anonymously, mm -hmm. like just at a wholesale to pick it up when they had no, no info of us. Sure. But yeah, so you, we used to run that space. Mm -hmm. And um, that was part of a bigger complex where we had uh, apartments for artists that were living there. We programmed... Um, Ex exhibitions, but also just like things happening. So every Thursday there was something to come to. We had like shows with Dean Blunt or um, John Wolfson. Sweet. Dean uh, Blunt played at the uh, yeah. Big fan. Nice. So it was just, you know, things took very different shapes. Um, and there were lots of people visiting. And like Martha Wilson, she's quite yeah. a big experiment or big uh, visual artist. Um, so they were Bettina Köster from Malaria. Mm -hmm. We did something with her there. No so um, so we kind of always tried to reach out, get people there. Yeah. But, uh, so that was happening. And um, we had apartments as well for artists. And uh, then at a certain point, it kind of felt natural that if we already have all these beers around, um, yeah. that we would try our hand on it. And, yeah. um, I guess well, that was I the only thing at that point that you didn't have control over. Yeah, controller. I mean, there's something very nice about exploring it as well. Yeah. But um, so we had um, we had this idea, and um, Erkan was living abroad then. Um, he had been studying brewing. He has been working in different breweries um, in the UK, Sweden, just kind of dipping his toes for a bit. And um, well, then we thought, you know, might as well try to set up something here. And we started very small in an apartment over there brewing small batches and I assume that's where it kind of mixes up or meshes with the story that the Oedipus uh, boys yeah, were yeah, yeah. telling uh, recently. Yeah. Yeah. Because you we, came up a couple of times. Yeah, you, got, uh, you <laughs> came up a couple of times because they were, they were talking about the home brewing days and I think yeah, they, they also told stories about these parties maybe that were at the art space. It wasn't, was it called Lost Property that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was the thing that they were, they were telling me about. Yeah, so... I was wondering, like, how you can apply, like, an art way of thinking to beer making. Well, can you? I mean, um, I mean, like, uh, that's also, I guess, the thing within a brewery. Um, you're coming from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that's where you're feeding into each other. Um, I mean, there's always this conversation about are brewers artists or artists brewers. I mean, you know, it's... Uh, it's different ways of thinking of making things. And um, I wouldn't necessarily say that the art sites that we had at Lost Property present then, out of which Butchers Tears emerged, uh, emerged, is still very present in the way we operate. But um, I think for me, always important thing in Lost Property, 
it's kind of channeling through Bocciasius's uh, idea of um, creating a fertile ground mm-hmm. for very diverse forms of expression. Mm. And I think that's something in the brewery that's pretty much present there as well. The idea of um, kind of A, creating an environment, but B, also create beers that can link into or exist in very different flavor ideas or histories. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a musician, you know, and I always think about beer in the same way as I think of listening to music oh, yeah. <laughs> for me it's sort of almost the same thing it's just different senses that are in at work you know? different layers yeah i guess yeah cool what are the you're the only dutch speaker yeah, on this yeah, one today yeah, yeah, yeah. i realize <laughs> it while i'm saying this <laughs> what what are the the simu- similarities hey what are the similarities then for you how do you see this between music and uh, tasting, hearing and tasting? Well, I mean, uh, as a musicologist, I've been studying musicology and, and uh, of course, you talk a lot about classical music. And the most classical music has a specific, um, it's built, uh, structured in a special way. Things yeah. come and go in certain uh, directions yeah, yeah yeah and they repeated and so on and i think that's the same thing with flavor uh, if you're uh, yeah, with beer or wine or cider or whatever yeah. it's it's it first you smell it and then you taste it and then it develops in your mouth and you have the aftertaste and everything and it kind of you can use the same terminology <laughs> yeah where, uh, on the flavor as you can do uh, would there be a flavor hearing. syntax yeah but I guess like music is always, uh, uh, modern music is always a pastiche of something that's already happened, right? And that's kind of what brew ma- uh, beer making is now a little bit. There's no kind of new beer styles being invented now. And they say the same about music. So I see that there are a lot of similarities there. But um, so with the, your events, I can see that there are similarities to what we were talking about um, last week, or the, sorry, the week before on the homebrew special, because we were talked a lot about how culture was a conscious decision from the start, having doing events and things like that. Was, th- was that the same for Butcher's Tears, would you say? And like, what were you trying to achieve with your events? Well, I think in the beginning when Butcher's Tears started, there was a, yeah, there was a clear idea to continue, kind of provide a space where things could happen. Yeah. Um, so that's why also there's a backspace, a concert space, and for different people to be able to come there with their formulated, not that well-formulated ideas of what they wanted to organize. Mm-hmm. And also maybe kind of give a space for people who are maybe not that professional in how they organize things mm-hmm. um, to make them happen and um, make that part of one environment with an engineering, like basically create a culture. Mm-hmm. Um where you know music or be it art music exhibitions and uh, drinking meeting people takes place together yeah and um, so that was a concert, conscious decision i think in the beginning i think i remember there was conversation about um if the word kulturbrauerei or uh, i guess in dutch kulturbrauerei yeah. yeah yeah uh, if that would be uh, maybe a more su- or a suitable term to use or not 
Yeah. I think in the end, it was kind of uh, decided against. But mm. so, yeah, that was something very clear. Yeah, it must be quite difficult to get that off the ground, though. Like, because if you're making beer and obviously you're having these events in order to sell beer to, yeah, it must be quite difficult and to keep that, sustain that in the early days. Yeah, well, I mean, you have to kind of get out one way or another. So uh, if you're running through the city trying to sell your beer to, uh, I mean, we are talking about 2011 or 12. Yeah. Uh, trying to sell your beer in um, non-suspecting bars or shops in the yeah. city who might not actually be used to that kind of beer. Or if you're trying to bring the people who might be interested in the first place or not, but bring them to you. Yeah. Might as well be the same effort. Yeah, for sure. And at what point did it kind of grow out of those uh, things in the art space? I think by uh, the end of 2011, you had started Butcher's Tears. Uh, yeah, we brewed the first beer in 2011. Then we got rolling properly in 2012. Yeah. The first beer, that was Green Cap, am I correct? The first beer under the name, which is, yes, was Green Cap, yeah. Yeah, okay, And that cool. was eight years ago and uh, one month or something. <laughs> oh, yeah, is it, was it the recent birthday <laughs> or of something. Uh, Green Cap? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it was uh, Green Cap's birthday was uh, one month ago. And, oh. um, yeah, like... Um, I mean, that's this, yeah, funny, funny little notice that, um, you know, Green Cab was the first yeah, pale ale IPA to be brewed in Amsterdam. Um, really? And it's hard to imagine, but uh, yeah, pretty much nice. nothing before that region. What a title to have. <laughs> Congratulations. Now, like, every brewery is doing a pale ale. <laughs> but yeah, that was, um, yeah, that's great. But... Yeah, so I, I feel like your beers and styles definitely touch upon more traditional styles of beers, right? And I was wondering why it is that you kind of go for traditional style of beers. Well, I um, I always feel a bit yeah, double about this term traditional and uh, classical. or Because what do we mean actually with that, right? Where does it go to? Where does it point to? Um I mean, in the same way, um, American IPAs in the early Sierra Nevada style mm. um, are they treasure. Obviously, I, I understand yeah, the, known, the reference. Yeah, they right? classics now, but like, I don't know, I was reading about a lot of your beers and a lot of them on your social media say how this takes reference from uh, uh, an early style of beer from back in the... 1900s in uh, England and it's definitely paying closer attention to that compared to uh, a common day session IPA you know using yeah I just wondered why you go for that style of beer rather than uh, more of an American style of beer no so certainly I think we all uh, taking references and um, I think it's uh, for Ekan to say more but like what we think about it as traditional beers yeah. I mean, they're usually not as traditional as we think. They are much more recent. They have undergone so drastic changes yeah. that uh, we are also kind of using this terminology, traditional, to kind of put a lot of historical value, which is not really warranted uh, to beers, you know, as if they have been 500 years of history being the same kind of thing. Um, They've changed very drastically. And I mean, the reason they are so good is because they have been on it for such a long time often. Yeah. And um, maybe they came recently uh, that, well, well, I think Ekin has a strong interest in um, 
these kind of beers also. Yeah, would you say that? Yeah, well, I don't really know how it began, but I've, I've developed an interest in like uh, beer history, especially specifically British and oh, yeah. Scandinavian. Uh, and the more sources I find, the more excited I get because beer back, you know, 150 years ago was pretty fucking extreme by today's oh, yeah? standards. What do you mean by that extreme? I mean, they were incredibly hoppy uh, and often very strong. And uh, they were, you know, st- you know, blended with stock beers with Brettanomyces and bacteria and shit. And we can't even imagine what they actually tasted like. Yeah, yeah. That's so that's curious. why I wanted to like try to recreate some of that. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, uh, yeah, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I think beer in general during the whole, you know, industrial aftermath during the last hundred years have gone downhill and traditional beer now is pretty much a very watered down mm. version of what it, what it was. Mm. So, uh, you would say for the worst? I think I would have preferred to live 100 years ago than 50 years ago when it comes to beer to be honest what is it what is it about that that is so fascinating is it is it because they were so strong and i think i don't know but i think it was a more of a living organism back then people brewed whatever they felt like brewing and it was not so streamlined i think it was with the the bavarian lager that Breweries started to approach okay. more of a uh, yeah streamlined approach to flavor and and, uh, and then I think the last yeah since the Second World War it's been all about saving costs and you know yeah, making okay. volumes rather than great flavor yeah which is of course turned now the last uh, 10, 20 years. Are there any of those British uh, breweries that kind of interest you that are still kind of a- around in some form some form from like years ago? Uh, there are a few that still uh, brew in the old way and keep doing weird stuff. Harvest is a favorite. Harvest. Harvest. Uh. Harvest make an incredible imperial stout that you should check out if you have oh, the yeah. possibility and where are they where are they from uh the south sussex sussex yeah okay i'll have to check them out i can't say i've heard uh, of them. harvest from lewis harvest from lewis yes. oh lewis is uh uh near brighton right in the yeah south it's a very coast. quaint yeah i've quaint actually been to lewis yeah. I oh but then i'm surprised you haven't uh heard of harvest because i think it's like the Pride of the whole town. Oh, really? Is it? Yeah. And I had I had had a pint in Lewis. I've uh, I've watched the football game in Lewis and had. Oh, a but pint. then I'm sure it was uh, Harvest uh, Sussex Best Bitter. Oh, maybe, maybe I'll have to. Uh, one of my friends lives in Brighton, so I'll have. And that's right next to Lewis, so I'll have to. Uh, oh, it's hard. It's hard to uh, find the beers here. Ask him to ship some over. Yeah, okay, so. okay. I'll let you. I'll let <laughs> you know how that goes. Um, but also, like you mentioned, how you do a bit of research into these uh, old traditional beer styles. Like, how do you how do you do that? Is there like 
old brewing scripture or manuals and things? Well, there are various sources. Um, great collection of old books that oh, I've yeah. been <laughs> finding in thrift stores. But um, now we're we're lucky to uh, one of our regular customers is Mr. Ron Pattinson, the famous ah, okay. historian. So he comes down to the brewery quite often. So we have had many many hours of chatting about historical okay, okay. brewing methods and. Uh, Stuff like that. So, yeah, he's quite the. I recently discovered him. Um, someone told me to check to check him out, and he really is quite the beer philosopher, we'll say. And there's quite a. He has his website shop about Barclay Perkins, is it? That is quite uh, the depth of knowledge about old traditional beer styles, and yeah, it's, it's quite uh, the rabbit hole you can go down uh, on that on that website. He's also a very jolly writer. I think that's yeah. a term you want to use, right? Jolly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and that's good because I guess if you're just talking about old scripture and uh, brewing manuals and things, it could uh, be lost on a lot of people. So his tone is very helpful, I think, with that. Um, I, I'm I'm surprised actually that you are a bit uh, like well traditional. I have s several thoughts about it, but isn't the term then historic or or something? Because history is definitely uh playing a role yeah certainly i mean history is um always perhaps but uh, i mean history is, is a lens right and i think that's um where i would also fully agree um like we are using the lens of history of interpreting history looking at history uh thinking about it but also thinking about the culture within which it took place the drinking culture mm -hmm. um uh to look at techniques of beer but also what beer was yeah. i mean beer is very different things and very different locales um but there's a beautiful thing about if you actually start looking beyond the surface and that's not just about history but it's also like currently it's happening around us is that it's uh, far more complex than the narrative that we all know like how beer started what beer is what these beer styles, I mean you know I'm putting them into uh, brackets what beer styles are I mean uh, most of that quite quickly collapses um, under such a yeah, diversity. And um, from then on, we're basically kind of, with everything we're doing, we're kind of rebuilding our little little narratives. Mm -hmm. And I think like the last 10, 15 years, beer has probably been more rewritten than uh, in the last 50 years before. I mean, there's like uh, every year, there's one or two books or coming out that... Uh, retell one major star, uh, part of how we think about beer currently. Mm. I think uh, the Scandinavian is the best example. Mm. And um, I mean, you have, uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to call him a simple blogger because it's obviously far more, but um, what's his name? Lars? Garsol. Lars Garsol. It's, um, he started writing about like local, regional, Norwegian, Norwegian, but also Estonian, that that uh, uh, region, but also Russia, mm. uh, local farmers' brewing traditions mm -hmm. um, or practices that are not codified, but they are just handed down, orally told through over generations, and um, very often in very far away um, environments where you maybe have no access to actually industrially produced molds um, mm. or yeasts. Yeah. But they have been uh, keeping a brewing culture alive over 
hundred hundred fifty years with um, with their own family yeasts and brewing very very different beers to anything we can think about here. And um, mm. I mean, there's so many interesting kind of earth shattering if you allow them to be um, little nuggets coming out like um, about the yeast about mashing or baking uh, yeah. right baking the grains to uh, to access the sugars and um, so I think that's a, it's a field in flux and um, well, the reason I kind of have a little bit of problem with the terms traditional is because it doesn't mean a lot in the end of the day because um all these cultures um, have been changing and are changing. And if I'm going, for example, to South Germany and talk about the beer, like a Keller beer, and like every few every few breweries, I hear something else about how suddenly what we take as given as a Keller beer has just emerged in the mid-90s. And whereas the story always is that it's this kind of old beer style. It's very much the same about Lambiques. Mm. Um, so there, it's, you know, it's... Uh, it's an active field, and um, I don't think we do what has happened before us justice by treating it as like this kind of historical object. Right. Maybe it's just because we've become more curious. We want to put a name on things. Like, I want to put a name on a Belgian style of beer. What is this German style of beer I'm drinking? And then more and more styles have developed from that just because of a, a need to put labels on things. Yeah. So, I mean, isn't it uh, utterly amazing how we are talking about like Belgium? brewing culture German. Yeah. I mean, these all these beers literally came up with the advent of nation building, you know? So yeah. they're in a way, they're a part of nationalist identity building. Yeah, they were never, they're only meant to be maybe drank locally. They were only meant to service a kind of a local area. You know, you think why certain beers are popular in certain ways and that's because they were just using what was readily available, I guess. True. Now, like we've talked a lot about beers from different areas. Um, do you guys, and then you can read about blogs about these different beer styles that you were talking about. Do you, but do you travel much to uh, to discover these beers? Or is there a particular style of beer you like from this particular area? Aircon first. Um, done my fair share of beer. Traveling, yeah. And where was your favorite? <laughs> I think spot, that's how I say? how I discovered beer in the first place was through touring with my bands through oh, yeah? through Europe. And then I came back to Sweden and was horrified by the <laughs> quality of beer that I, or not the quality, but the, it was so such a small range of, of beers other than you know mainstream lager that I could yeah drink. That's actually how I started. Why, why I started home brewing it was out of necessity. Yeah, <laughs> personal necessity yeah. to have more versatile beers. Was there a particular style when you were touring that really struck you? Uh, the Heineken while playing in Paradiso. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I guess I've always been very fond of British style beers yeah. in general. I think. Uh, the well-made ones, uh, not the industrially made ones. They're usually quite bland. But there are a lot of smaller breweries, uh, regional breweries, that make some fantastic beer. But it's usually very difficult to get hold of outside of the region where they're mm. situated. So you have to actually, yeah, you have to go there. You have to travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
and you, Jan, a particular beer and style that you well, uh, definitely, favor? I definitely, I don't think I've traveled actually that much. Um, I don't know that too much about British beers. I mean, knowing, you know, uh, reading. But um, I don't think I've ever gotten further than London, Brighton and Bristol. Mm. So um, I think that's also what Erkan and that example is talking about, that it's really this kind of small regional breweries that are creating a really character, characteristic mm. beers. And for Britain, I actually don't know too much, uh, which I do feel ashamed. But then, um, well, I've done South Germany, mm. um, which is, well, it's not fair to say I've done Franconia. Yeah. Um, South Germany is far bigger than that. And uh, Czech. And yeah, there were often discoveries. Yeah. Well, yeah, the only reason I bring it up is that this is maybe a common theme that comes up on the show is this idea of uh, like memory and inspiration about like, uh, okay, so we had a baker on here and I wanted to know like when she first became, uh, when she first fell in love with bread, essentially. And I thought, but it's, I thought it's the same with beer making as well. Like maybe the first time you came in contact with a beer uh, that you were... Uh, really made an impact on you, you know. Which is also something to think about uh, as, yeah, the being a brewery, that um, the reason we often fall in love with these things is not necessarily only because the beer or the bread is so fantastic, but it's because it has built a whole culture around it as well. Exactly, yeah. And, um, yeah, well, uh, it's rare to see breweries currently being busy with this fact of building cultures as well and yeah. not just beers because beers became such a fast moving subject yeah for sure matter but then i mean i just it's uh it's amazing that i forgot it but um i mean i think both me and Dak and i've done our fair share of belgium as well but um, belgium is so easily easily forgotten for no good reason at all because well i guess by now we see it maybe more around um but belgium is like a fascinating backwater for mm. beer, I mean, that's like maybe one of the most diverse mm -hmm. beer environments and such a small place. Which particular uh, favorite Belgian brewery or style? I've always really liked... We're not allowed to say style. <laughs> yeah. It's a banned word on this show. I'll keep my mouth shut. Well, uh, I've always liked Detroit. It's uh, or Girardin as well, like the, um, the Lambic producers. Girardin is uh, old farming, farmer's family mm -hmm. that also produced Lambic. And uh, Detroch is pretty much as well located in an old farm and have been doing Lambic and blended goose since, um, I, I assume, a good century. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I find them utter, I found them and find them utterly fascinating. Cool. Now you mentioned uh, Franconia and I know you, you as a brewery enjoy your Franconian beers and uh, also the Pivo Festival, like we said, is meant to be this weekend. And we've seen a rise in the uh, popularity of like bottom fermented beers. And I was wondering if you, what, what you think about what it is about that style that has been overlooked or what you find interesting about that style? Not so much. Not so much. No. Uh, <laughs> well, there are some really, really great beers, yeah. but there's also even more beers that can be forgotten very, very quickly. Right. Um, but the reason um, I've started to um, engage a bit more with it and also as a brewery yeah. um, was that I think for what we are doing as Butcher Steers, so what the beers we are doing, there was very little context. 
there were not many breweries that I felt an affinity with mm -hmm. uh, for what they were trying to do as brewery or the flavors they were developing or maybe how they thought about beer. And um, being like smaller Czech breweries, Southern German beers, th there are, I found some, um, some uh, partners in crime. Mm -hmm. I felt like uh, some beers that maybe shared ideas, but they also uh, shared flavor characteristics um, that kind of come back again in our beers. I don't right. think they they um, they exist in the same environment. Certainly not. Most of these breweries that when we're doing these events, they are local breweries. They are not part of this current environment of beer. Yeah, but. Um, like the depth of flavor often or the complexity without the overwhelmingness um, or like the hops, the malts, the presence of the malts. That is something that uh, I saw much more there than in other current craft breweries. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, we're still um, planning loosely at some point to do, before Brexit, I hope, to the, to the great, 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 British cask festival in Amsterdam. Oh, nice! So, because um, you have a couple of cask uh, pumps on your in your bar, don't you? Yeah, we have. Um, we built a little mobile setup yeah. to be able to pour uh, cask via hand pumps. Nice. And we have a few German style gravity casks as well. Cool. So the idea is that every Friday evening, when you come actually to the brewery pub, you will either find hand pump beer beer poured from hand pump, or you find a German gravity cask. Wicked. But so what I find interesting is you guys started at a very similar time to Oedipus and like a lot of breweries that started around that time really was kind of how it all began all those years ago. But the two breweries comparing to Oedipus have had a very different path and you've maybe stayed the course and you're still doing what you've done and stood by your ideas. Um, but I don't like I'm responsible for beer festivals. I've never really seen you guys at any of the beer festivals that we end up going to. And you kind of challenge maybe what a modern craft brewery should be doing. Uh, would you say that to be true? Like kind of challenging that convention of what a modern craft brewery should be like? Yeah, sure. I'm not even sure you could call us a modern craft brewery because that you... probably gets the wrong impression. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I sometimes wonder myself what we're doing. But I, su <laughs> I suppose, you know... <laughs> These days, it's it's very it's a lot about ingredients and you know and as you say styles and stuff like that. But I'm I'm a very like process oriented brewer. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm very fond of my setup. You know, yeah. We we our techniques are pretty obsolete, but you know we're you know we use open fermentation for example, and we use our own yeast, and that gives a very specific character to the beer and. Uh, and that's what we build upon. And that's also why we can't expand too much because without, you know, making compromises to, yeah. to what we to, the, to what you do. Yeah. And that's that's maybe what you would say is the most <laughs> most important thing to do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean this idea of um you know, contributing something. Uh, yeah. I mean we earlier we talked about history, but that is in that what you do potentially contribute something to the greater uh, whole yeah. of that story. Yeah. And I mean, as Ekan has just said, so we are repitching the yeast. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know by at which generation or generation we are now, but um, I've lost count. Yeah. <laughs> so we're harvesting the yeast from our open tanks. Cool. And um, we are repitching that in the next beer. So yeast is not a product that you pluck from the from the catalog of the yeast brewery supplier, but it's an organism that develops and changes with your brewery, with your setup, your geom- geometry, and it changes over time as well. It's uh, you get different expressions in different temperature seasons, and you work with that. You know, and um, this also it, it's in that sense it's a strong break also with this industrial tradition of going, for example, to the single yeast cell, growing up there, the product which is always stays exactly the same and which you try to sell over that very clear, always clearly defined mm. terminology. Mm. Let's take a short break to call Jan van der Lucht to check out what's in his fridge. Jan is a DJ and a hobbyist chef who would usually be spending his summers playing festivals and parties all across Europe. But that's on hold, so maybe he'll have something interesting in his fridge. So, let's give him a call. Hello, is that Jan? Yes, it's Danny. Yes, it is. How are you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm pretty good, man. I'm pretty good. All right, well, uh, Jan, what have you got in your fridge? Today, I've got in my fridge, there is... Uh, kombucha, kefir, um, beer from Homeland, uh, oh, nice. New England IPA, uh, a bottle of rosé, and chili sauce. I have a lot of sauce. Okay, okay. Well, well let's slow down. <laughs> a lot of condiments. So let's slow down. What? So your kombucha, have you, uh, is that homemade or are you buying it from a, a local yeah. producer? Oh, yeah. So, you, so uh, what flavor is your kombucha? I started with coffee kombucha because I was really interested in what to do with food that normally gets thrown away. Yeah. And I was inspired by a recipe book and I thought like, yeah, I'm going to try that home and it's actually quite delicious. How do you make coffee kombucha? It's the same as normal kombucha and the traditional one I think uses tea or black tea. Yeah. And and I substitute the uh, kombucha or the tea with coffee. But basically anything with sugar sugar syrup, you can yeah you can make apple kombucha or carrot kombucha or any flavor you like. You don't need the black tea in it. So okay. my next step is probably going to be chamomile or whatever. I don't know. Okay, cool. So it's just like a, a fermented uh, drink then. It's, it doesn't necessarily have to yeah. be kombucha. Yeah, okay, cool, nice. Oh. And uh, you said you had a, a beer from Homeland. So what, a New England IPA, right? Yeah. All right, cool. So... Uh, are you familiar with Homeland? Why Why Homeland? A friend of mine works there. Ah, so nice. he gave it to me, and that's the last one that I didn't test yet. So if the next question was going to be, like, how does it taste? I have no clue. Ah, yeah. okay. Well, like, the New England IPA is uh, really, really popular at the moment. We've chatted about them quite a lot on the show, and it's kind of just like alcoholic fruit juice. I'm a big fan, but it kind of splits up the, the beer world a little bit. Some of them, some people... Say they don't like drinking them. Some people do, mm-hmm. uh, but I personally really like it because it's just uh, it's alcoholic fruit juice. So, do you pay attention to like the freshness of your beer? I do. That's why I also normally don't drink that much beer, mostly because also I think when I drink beer, it's pilsner. Yeah, yeah. I think I like more the the heavy kind of flavor, so that's why I, I like to make kombucha. Yeah, I think that's also also because the New England IPA has a little bit more alcohol in it, so. 
it's not like a beer that you just take out of the fridge and drink. Yeah. But I think the way you were describing the beer, I think it's something that I would really like to drink as well. Yeah, definitely. It definitely is full of flavor. They're just known as very juicy uh, beers. Mm-hmm. More about uh, taste and quality rather than just drinking loads. Uh-huh. And what else did you say you had? You said you have some wine in there. It's wine from what I, which I got from a friend of mine. I don't think I would drink it anytime soon. <laughs> I think it's more like a wine that you like to drink when you want to get drunk. Oh, so it's cheap, cheap and cheerful, let's say. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay, okay. But if, if you were socializing uh, with a couple of friends, would you rather drink wine or, or, or would it be beer? For now, I think wine, but that's also mostly because I know more about wine than about beer. I think also because mostly when I drink at, at other friends and when they choose their beverages, it's also mostly wine. Yeah. So I think I would prefer wine, but just so the friend of mine that's working at home, he's still trying to push beer. And I think I'm going to try and see what it's like to prepare beer with food, because I think that's also, it must be possible. Anything with alcohol and uh, like a big taste will work with any food, I guess. So. Yeah, for sure. I think I think that's definitely something we're trying to explore is uh, the possibilities of doing more food and, and beer tastings. Mm-hmm. You're right. Wine so well known is uh, pairing well with uh, flavors. What what kind of flavors do you like pairing with the food you cook? Normally, when I choose wine, it doesn't per se have to be a natural wine, but I like it when it has. How do you say this without being snobby? A funkiness, slight, slightly sour no, funkiness. No, f- funkiness, but also like it's it's called lactic. Yeah, yeah. The lactic. same taste you have when you eat, for example, pickles. Like yeah. any pickles. A slight sourness. The, the sourness, but it also has like something rich to it. Like it's a, a like a butter thing. So so the that that kind of taste that's that's the one that I really, really like. Normally the food that goes well with it is pasta and, and that always works when people come for dinner and you just have a nice pasta. A rich pasta sauce goes well with a nice yeah. uh, sour wine. I can I can yeah, already taste exactly. that. And where do you use it? you said you've got a friend uh, who who you get your wine from? Where do you, where would you usually buy your wine? Is there a particular region that you always like buying wine from when you're in a store? Or not really. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, when he recommends a wine, I just buy it because I know that his taste is that well. Yeah. That's also why I don't know that much about wine. I just trust his taste, and then I will buy it. And totally understand. I'm I'm happy to also to be recommended beer and and wine because. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to explore. And having someone that knows their shit is always very helpful. Before you go, what else have you got in your fridge that's worth talking about? What else have I got? Yeah. Now, <laughs> really lost track of like, the whole subject. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the kombucha, the kefir, the rosé, the beer, the other thing that I have. Yeah, it's mostly just pickled onions, pickled cucumbers. And you're making them yourself, uh, those, right? No, no I, I bought those, but also have uh, a bag of pickled uh, or fermented celeriac. What else do I have in the fridge? I think that's about it. Oh, yeah, and I have my sourdough starter for for bread. That's oh, yeah? something that I have in the fridge, yeah. Are you pretty proud of your sourdough starter? Is it is it pretty good? Yeah, it, I think it's it's worth selling. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a pr- uh, proud man. I'm not actually already sold it, so that's not fair to say. Ah, okay, okay. All right, nice, man. Jan, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, likewise. And we'll see each other soon then at uh, Oedipus, I think. Yeah, that would be great. All right. Thanks for chatting, Jan. Perfect. See you. Bye-bye. 
And a special thanks to Jan. If you want to talk about what's in your fridge, contact me via the address radio at udipus.com. But for now, let's jump back into it with Bass, Jan and Erkan. Well, we're going to start drinking uh, one of your beers. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a good time. We have some empty glasses around the table, so yeah. maybe we can... Uh... So, uh, what, what is it the beer you brought today? I forgot what you said at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about it. Smoke and Mirrors. Smoke and Mirrors? Is this a new beer, or is this like a version, something of an old beer? We have been brewing this on and off since almost the beginning, I think. Oh, nice. Used to come in the, the in the wine bottles, right? Yeah. Erkan, you you talked a little bit about how uh, the process behind you making a beer, like what? How does that go about making a new beer for Butch's Tears? There's a much thought that goes into uh, what you would like to do with with the beer in terms of flavour, or would you say it's you? I don't know, finding one of these old manuals and you're like, oh, I would really like to try this, more of like a homebrew kind of direction. A uh, bit of both, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it totally depends on... on uh, I suppose we start off by looking at what we sort of need to, okay. to, to have the, you know, portfolio that is... Because a lot of beers we do are like one-offs or they're brewed like once a year or every two years they you know yeah come and they disappear so but if i make a completely new beer that yeah sometimes i have a flavor in mind sometimes mm-hmm. I have a crazy technical idea that i want to try out and, yeah and, but yeah it totally depends yeah, but is is there like a structure behind it? So like, yeah, we have a core beer range, right? And we know that we want to do a spring seasonal, let's say, which is maybe how like a common brewery would be run. Or is this that's, that's how we you... try to do it, but we never managed because we're so fucking um, <laughs> disorganized. <laughs> Our spring beers come in the autumn and vice versa. Like... Yeah, fair enough. All right. So what? Do I smell? There's something in this. Oh, like bananas. No, yeah. Something sweet. I would say you. You know, uh, um, it's not toothpaste, but you have sassafras, which I use for uh, this American uh, sodas. Mm. I have that aroma very. Uh, in there. Yeah. Probably it's from the hops. I think. I'm really curious. Do you agree, or do you uh, understand what I'm saying? Yeah, that's uh, yeah, Felicia, our uh, my co-founder. That's yep. her favorite beer flavor. So uh, I will be. She will be very happy. That <laughs> it's extra pronounced in this batch. <laughs> yeah, it's like it is like a minty herbalness. Yeah. yeah, is that the start? Is that the flavor that she likes? No, the specific like bubble gum kind of uh, ah, okay. sassafras. It's, uh, but oh, I think it comes from the yeast. This I this one right. pushed quite high in temperature when I brew this beer so it, you get more of the esters and the fruity mm. things going on i have a so, uh, lemonade from sarasota a local uh, lemonade maker oh, yeah. and they also have a sassafras uh, one and I, if it's still in my fridge i'll bring it to you nice <laughs> yeah i would be very curious it's an underrated uh, flavor and yeah and also <laughs> not, people don't understand it especially when it's in these extreme sodas it's yeah. it's uh it's an acquired taste 
It's funny because if someone was to say sassafras and I don't know what sassafras is, so I would be like, ooh, sounds interesting. But it if, it would, if it would have said uh, it tastes like bubblegum, I'd be like, in a beer, no, I'm good. Well, uh, toothpaste, that's uh, because it can go quite extreme, the sassafras. It can really... Uh, so yet, uh, also Cascade, the, the brewery Cascade. Yeah. Uh, no, not Cascade. Uh, uh, Caldera. They also made a root beer. And that's also, and that's the first association I had was toothpaste. All right. Okay. This is really balanced. I, I, I would use called minty and herbal. Mm. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I like this more than the Caldera one, actually. <laughs> I was very surprised that um, when you wrote the descriptions or description for the bar stuff and for the menu the other week that you actually gave away that um, you were thinking about uh, Gotland Strika. Yeah. Which is, I don't think I ever had what would be considered like a local proper Gotland Strika. It's a very local Swedish type of beer brewed on Gotland, from what I understand. Yeah. No, it's like a smoked, uh, strong beer, which is usually extremely estuary mm -hmm. mm. but it can vary a lot from brewer to brewer it's really a it's a proper farmhouse product there's not no commercial breweries doing it it's quite subtle in its smokiness i think mm. or you think it's extreme no i think it's oh. subtle i think it's a really unique flavor i've never had a beer that's tasted no. kind of this pronounced with the, that kind of which is uh that's really nice thing i think that's uh, very true about most of our beers that they develop over time which mm. i think it's uh yeah, one of the parts I enjoy about beer is that they um, they change. If you have a batch from a year and a half ago, which I think is very often our ambition that, you know, a beer, even an IPA, um, yeah. you know, if, if, if you aim for brewing it with the changes over time in mind, you can often have a beer as well that has changed at six months, eight months, nine months. Mm -hmm. It will be a different beer, but... Um, it highlights other aspects of the flavor. And uh, I think first time or one of the first batches we brewed, trying that a year and a half later, uh, we we're very surprised how good it was, but very different. Mm. Um, in that sense that, I mean, there's, there's quite an outspoken uh, yeast hop presence in this mm. beer. This, the, yeah, the smokiness is more subdued, kind of piercing through it, mm -hmm. possibly once you have the the fruitiness kind of layering out, fading out, the smoke becomes much more present, and it kind of changes the structure of the beer, and creates a very interesting beer. Mm. What do you think about then about the because uh, a lot of breweries are now going for the most extreme fresh beers, and especially with pale ales and IPAs, and you of course one of your bigger beers is also uh, still uh, a green. Um, uh, uh, sorry, Green, green Cap. Green Cap. Yeah. Hello. So I saw Green Butchers, but that's a really cool other movie. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a Danish movie. Yeah, it's yeah. super funny. But uh, sorry, Green Cap. Um, should it be? So what do you think about this freshness? And do you think Green Cap should be should take should it be consumed fresh or not? I mean, freshness is an interesting term, right? Because mm -hmm. um, we can interpret it in the way it's currently interpreted, which is um, a gradient, which is has one end and has another end. 
and it starts at fresh. And from that moment, it's basically a little bit less fresh every moment that passes. But we can think of freshness as actually a quality, a characteristic of a beer that is not necessarily linked to time as such, the time that passes, but as a characteristic that a beer has, uh, a freshness that it presents. Because mm -hmm. often I would say that in yeah, very fresh beers, um, they often lack balance. They often um, show a lot of flavors or aroma components in the beer, which you actually would want to fade out. Um, so it tastes very green, very uh, immature mm -hmm. in both ways. Mm -hmm. And um, usually a little bit of time clears these flavors. Um, it sharpens them up, creates a balance, mm. creates a roundness. And um, yeah, I think these flavors have become popularized simply by the term of freshness being interpreted like, you know, this gradient. So no, and that's how flavor changes over time as well. Um, now, what used to be considered flavor, which is very brute, very, um, very undesired, mm. became very popular simply because it's kind of considered of you have proven that you can buy the beer as quick as possible after it has been filled. Mm -hmm. But then I think what you have to keep in mind with our beers is that we condition in the bottle and we do that for all beers. So in the moment we fill the beer, we are selling it often, two, three, four weeks after we have filled the beer. We are conditioning it in the bottle to create the carbonation, mature it and balance it. And um, I think that time is very essential and it clears up a lot of that undesired flavor. Right, but then still after nine months, uh, um, it's nine months, so it, it's actually uh, 10 months after uh, bottling it. Uh, so, but after nine months, uh, you start, uh, it, it still sold. Would you consider a bill ill old then? Well, I, I uh, usually when or I too old, perhaps. To, uh, well, if I walk into a shop, is we have since the beginning always added bottle dates and best before dates. Best before dates, um, there's a legal structure behind it, but we also treat them as something that we want to inform people with. And bottling dates, simply because they are actually meaningful dates. I mean, you go into shops and they have best before dates. What do they mean? Nothing yeah, that's to me. actually one of my biggest but, frustrations. But, <laughs> but so um, if I go into shop and if I in that moment get, buy a beer, which I think where this particularly matters, I look at it and, and I have an awareness that some breweries, after a month and a half, that beer is old. Other breweries, after nine months, maybe I consider the beer old. So I think there's a huge variety and breweries, A, how they treat the beer, how they brew the beer, mm -hmm. but also about what um, the storage is important, but also, you know, the ability or the focus of a brewery mm -hmm. to care about it. I mean, most of our beers um, take a six, seven, eight week process from brewing till selling, which, which is, is particularly long yeah. if you compare to other breweries doing similar beers. So um, to your question about the, do I find nine months old, depends very much on the storage. Cool. But um, I think you can often have, well, I think you rarely notice, can find a pale ale, which uh, is good after nine months, but it has nothing to do with the pale ale as such. It has to do with breweries choosing to brew certain kind of beers, heavily depending on certain aromas that fading away, but 
for example, have no. It's also about it. development. I mean, when you do bottle conditioning, you still have live yeast in the bottle that will still uh, keep on working and eating some of the sugar. So if you, especially with dry hop beers, you have a lot of hop particles still in the bottle also, if you do it unfiltered. And the yeast will create esters in the presence of those hop particles. So actually, mm. you have a very interesting... If you um, age a uh, bottle-conditioned IPA, you get some really interesting uh, fruitiness after a certain amount of time, mm. uh, which I personally find very interesting. Uh, it's, of course, yeah, it tastes very different to when it's fresh, but it's, it's mm. uh, definitely not worse i don't think it's uh, uh, it's, it's, a, it's it's a different beer uh, yeah <clears throat> but you know the thing with freshness you never know because you have no idea you know the how a beer is bottled and, and the, the quality of the bottling equipment and how the process is at a, at a certain breweries it's always a it's, a, it's a guesswork you know yeah mm. i worked in a brewery in sweden whose beers uh, were great straight off the bottling line, but they were fucking terrible after two months because they didn't they didn't have really crappy filler, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you know that, you know you need to drink the beer within two months. But for for our beers, probably it's it's the other way around. You should probably mm. keep the beer for two months mm. before you're drinking it. So it's. it's uh, I think we had that uh, very moment a few weeks back when we um, brewed a double IPA. Yeah, we did. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say that it's kind of it. <laughs> kind of in line with a very a lot of beers that are kind of on trend, which I don't really see you guys brewing beers that are on trend. Oh, we can come we back to what it, it is as a, as a summer special. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Beyond exactly. that, but also it's, it's, it's actually quite it's it's a very nice beer. I think um, I think it's very characteristic also for us. Um, it's already finished, or you still? Yeah, it's uh, not. Uh, it's already finished. But uh, I remember Akan. I mean, we are setting usually dates when the beer, when we expect the beer to be ready, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so this moment came, I was looking at Ekan, and it was like, ah, no, let's wait a week more or two, you know? It's like, let's not rush it out. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, I mean, most other breweries would have sold their IPA like a month before they had brewed it. Yeah, Five yeah. dice uh, fermentation and canning, out it goes. Yeah. So I think from brewing until we started selling it, because it had really settled into it, um, it really developed enough complexity from the blend of the yeast and the hops. And that was like also, yeah, seven, eight weeks. And, wow. um, you know, it's a, it's a very nice beer. Mm. What's the name? Daydrifter. I I think I saw it on Facebook already. Did you post something about it? Could well be. We're trying to uh, be a little bit. I'll come soon. Yeah, <laughs> we'll be. We're trying to be a little bit more um, communicative nowadays. Yeah, I like that <laughs> because uh, it's not only about uh, sales, but it's also I just like to see what you're doing because you're doing cool stuff. So I uh, uh, good good stuff. <laughs> mm. We've talked a little bit there about how, like, um, yeah, a lot of other craft breweries uh, are always placing themselves with uh, juicy, fresh IPAs. And and we just had a passing comment about, like, what beers were on trend, let's say. And what, I was wondering, what where do you think you guys compare as uh, in comparison to other modern craft breweries? And is this something you care about? What is on trend? Or do you listen to what beer geeks want to drink and things like that? 
Well, I mean, there's a really, really great crappery at the dollar. No, I don't know it. Um, so you no. guys pull out these names that I'm just like <laughs> totally lost on me. It's like you're reading from a totally different book to us. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, uh, well, yeah. that's I mean, small as well, right? Yeah, yeah well, it was a little bit of a joke, but um, oh. they're great. They're fantastic. <laughs> but they're like one of the early, I don't know, from when are they? Like 82? Yeah. Right. 82 Belgian brewery and uh, absolutely insane. I think, uh, I mean, I think he was the first Belgian brewer. Maybe actually Arabier, is that also one? Arabier, exactly. But he was also the first Belgian brewer kind of using, uh, did he start using liquor barrels for his beers? Yeah, I think so. Um, so I think if we want to kind of follow the chain to maybe the beginning, he was the first brewery that started using uh, pre-used, still containing flavor of other distillates mm -hmm. uh, for the beer. Mm -hmm. um, open fermentation, cool ship, mixed, uh, well, using mixed cultures, um, lagering beers for four years, blending them back. Strong acidic beers, you know, like um, 10, 11, 12% strong beers. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, like fermentation schemes, like uh, very much out of the ordinary. So, yeah. um, I think there's like there's there's actually a lot of breweries around, right? And that's yeah. maybe what you ask about the festival also. Yeah. So when you uh, when you're going to festivals, or when you're seeing festival sheets, you're seeing these breweries, yeah. and uh, these breweries said. Yeah, maybe are on Trent or which are currently around. But there's like five times as many breweries you never see on any festivals or maybe because they wouldn't come, but maybe also because they never get asked um, because they're outside of that narrow range yeah, that is yeah, currently yeah. palatable. We had this with Blaugy at Planet Oedipus uh, two okay. years ago. And it was really funny because they he was standing there and selling all these beers and he, he's like, I never had this. What the hell is going on here? Yeah, okay, All these right. young people. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, so there, there's like absolutely fantastic breweries that are, um, and this is not about quality. Mm. Um, this has a lot to do with, well, self-positioning, mm. but also has a lot to do with, you know, um, yeah, like a kind of international networks of brewers. And I mean, in the end, yes, when we want to use the term craft beer, it has very diverse interpretations within mm. or under that umbrella term that people use. Mm. But um, they're equally great breweries. Yeah, outside and a of certain it. flavor fashion, of course. So, and, uh, but that's not about quality uh, per se. It's about There's also something which, um, and I think maybe that's also, you made the reference of Bushes T.S. Oedipus started at a very similar moment. And... Um, one thing that I appreciate about, for example, Southern Germany, Franconia, yeah. is that, you know, the the way society culture is set up there, it creates a ground for possibly even every village, every third, second village. If you have a brewery, you have mm -hmm. a density of, I think, 400 breweries, 350, mm -hmm. in a very small region. And they're absolutely world-class brewery, brewing beer under the same name, mm -hmm. but there's quite a lot of diversity quite a lot of different techniques little uh, little experiments little local expressions mm. of flavor and um, i think that's i think for butcher's tears as a thought this uh um being part of an environment where you have a lot of producers developing independent um 
ideas of flavor that mm -hmm. can kind of coexist. Whereas this current also beer world, but not only beer world, kind of tries to always find its current superstar. Yeah, yeah. And then it moves to the next one. But, it, you know, it creates a very different structure of how yeah. culture is distributed. A lot of smaller producers versus mm -hmm. a few bigger ones that are then kind of heralded as the current go-to gods. Yeah. So you maybe, and I would agree that maybe a lot of these beer festivals are too one-directional, let's say. They're only picking the beer, the um, breweries that are very much doing the same thing. Then I, I understand. I mean, what was around there, and especially in the Netherlands, uh, 10 years ago. So, um, I mean, we kind of went through a hyper-compressed, if you look at it, within 10 years. I mean, how many flavors have been introduced in this culture? How many, how many beer types or how many kind of different ideas of what a brewery is? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's also like, we always talk about breweries and breweries and breweries. But then you have like breweries that are farms as well who are producing beer from their own grain. Yeah. You have um, yeah, small family breweries that kind of going back five, six hundred years. Yeah. You have industrial breweries. You have farmhouse brewing. I mean, you have, you have like uh, the Cologne, Düsseldorf category of like, you know, local city breweries, five or six in the center. So it's, it's very different um, idea of what a brewery is. And I think that mm. creates very different ideas of beer as well. Mm -hmm. And I mean, within 10 years, beer in the Netherlands has kind of gotten a crash course. And um, so it's not surprising. That, yeah, uh, yeah. We're still settling, you know, or like... Very much. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, everything is still finding its place. I mean, it's very young. And I mean, that's, uh, that's a hopeful part about that's this. That's the right? exciting it's, part. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree. Yeah, you're right. Would you say there, there were any um, difficulties with this self-positioning, though, like you said? That it's for us? Yeah. Yeah, for us. I mean, that's, uh, it's, um, I mean, we have to realize, I mean, where are we, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just as a brewery, but also in life. I mean, God knows. Yeah. Um, but then, I mean, I think we kind of know what we're interested in and what we want to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, that's a nice part. I mean, I can just mention the process. I mean, everything is in process, right? So, yeah, well, uh, I've come to my, the end of my questions. So thanks guys. Thanks for being so patient and listening and answering all my questions. It's been great. But, uh, the, if you've listened to the show before, you'll know that this is not the end. We always finish the show with a small quiz, which I didn't tell you guys about. So, uh, and what I'm going to do, what we end it with is 10 quick questions, uh, usually themed around the episode. And, uh, yeah, you have a shot at being on the leaderboard, as you can see here. So Bass is going to be my assistant. And this time, which I think is really apt, is it's a beer history quiz. So... <laughs> You guys strike me as quite the academics, and uh, Thank so God I'm going to test history. No, not tradition. <laughs> it's not good thing. It's not about tradition. I wonder if there is any question about styles. I'll need. I need to kind of bleep that word. Yeah. Out. One thing. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I think we are also very much about ambiguity. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, I will contest any question that you have there already. I can <laughs> tell. I can tell. This is why it was quite difficult for me to prepare this. But because... I'm. Uh, I'm uh, the judge. 
Yeah. And uh, I am very strict, and I am definitely the bad cop here. So uh, yeah, sorry so, mate, for that already. There are a few rules to this, and like, yeah, it always goes that I'm good cop, he's bad cop, and he has the final uh, decision on the score. And we have to say whatever is written down is the answer. So you can t contest as much as you want, Jan. Yeah, but, but... Uh, you m might not get you a point. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's get straight into this. Okay. Question number one: Which beer used the advertising slogan? Slogan. The beer is good for you. In which language? Uh, English. Vicky, way Sounds familiar, it. but... Uh... So it's the beer brand and then is good for you. Also, oh, it would be the name of the brewery. So the name of the brewery is good for you. It must be a brewery that had quite a smartly developed marketing department. Yeah, definitely. So um, Guinness, maybe. Correct. Well done. Correct. It is Guinness. Okay. It's Question. still in every pub. It's you have this uh, metal yeah. signs that say Guinness, Guinness is good, good for you. you. Get, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, was it called back in the days a nourishing stout? A nourishing stout. Yeah. That's a wonderful. Yeah, term. I think I've seen that. Uh, I mean, that's wonderful well. terminology. Stouts are nourishing. Yeah. I mean, that's wonderful terminology for you know, like that's good marketing. especially British nineteen twenty early twentieth century beers. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Uh, okay, question number two. Belgian lambics are fermented with spontaneous yeast, but one, from what valley is that spontaneous yeast? The Senna Valley. Correct. That is what I've got written down. Well done. Uh, what year was yeast discovered? Now, I feel like this one's going to be contested. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, listened, I listened to your uh, episode with Matthias from Naval yeah. while riding here. And uh, what's the question about Pasteur? Like, question was who discovered uh, yeast? And I mean, well, what's yeast? Huh? Oh, right, here we like... go. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> no, but um, I don't know. I mean, well, Pasteur discovered, invented yeast. Yeah. Discovered yeast. Oh, it was God. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so I'll give you the cl closest tenth year. Tenth year, well, you don't uh, get the exact year. What? what? I'm the best cop. Okay. Eighty. <laughs> what did you say? Eighteen eighty-seven. Eighteen. Uh, wait a sec. Wait a sec. Eighteen eighty-seven. No, I would go earlier, but uh, we're okay. by five years. But around that. Eighteen eighty-seven minus five years. You're still wrong. I'm afraid. Oh, yeah? It's eighteen sixty-two. Oh, true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, because, super. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a wonderful book which I can certainly recommend. It's uh, Pasteurization of France. Okay. It's about um, not only about the well, uh, Pasteur discovering yeast, but um, about a how we kind of spread this knowledge. I mean, how do you go from? And there were ideas of yeast before, right? I mean, yeah. yeast was known, even though it's not mentioned. Uh, but there well, were, there's evidence of brewing, like all oh, like we can go yeah. BC, you know. But so, how like, he goes about knowing what yeast yeah. was? But how he goes about proving it? Yeah. That it exists and that it's actually real, and you know they can use it. Yeah. It's uh, jolly. Yeah, but jolly. Like, <laughs> very fascinating. Okay, question number four: What does the word lager mean? Well, lagering. Lager. Like mean. Mean, as in in the brewing uh, term, I would say. I've thought this was an easy question. Well, it's cool. but it's to store. I mean. It's... I'll accept that. It's storage. Yeah, that's what we've got written down. Okay, onophobia means the fear of wine. But what is the fear of beer? What's the fear of wine? Onophobia. 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 
which is spelled O-E-N-O-P-H-O-B-I-A. Virology. Yeah. Um, you know, they're coming up recently with all these terms, virology. And uh, yeah. so um, what's, uh, what's the old terminology for beer? What's often called? Take uh, our guess. It's a Greek term. It comes from a Greek term, apparently. Oh, did the Greeks have proper beer? Uh, they were definitely scared of it. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think Akon has the guess. No, I'm afraid I have never suffered from it. So. Yeah, I know. I don't think any of us around this table, so I'm not surprised that none of us so know. Maybe in the morning. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, in the morning. <laughs> it's xythobia. So, so zytho z y t h o is the Greek word for beer. Obia is uh, to be scared, I guess. That's going to come in handy in the future. Yeah, that knowledge. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I hope you. I've always learning things in these uh, podcasts. So I hope I can send you guys home with a bit of knowledge. Uh, question number six: Due to the prohibition in Iceland, beer was illegal until what year? That was very recently. I mean, yeah. Um, I want to say like. 1980s something, but okay, okay. Is we need a final answer? Even later, I think. Yeah. 90s could very well be also. So I guess when we have a 10, mi 10 plus minus, then I would say if we kind of do an 80s guess, then we should be. Uh, no, I didn't say not for this question oh. since it's more recent. You you, you're, get... you cannot decide what your <laughs> margin is. <laughs> for this question, it has to be exact. Yeah, well, um, I don't know. yeah, let's say 90. That's 80, uh, 89, 91. You should have gone with Jan's guess. It's 1989. And March the 1st is known as Beer Day in Iceland. Actually, I've uh, just know that we talk about numbers. Eric earlier said 1887, right? And I said five years earlier. And you said it was a plus minus 10 range. So I was at, no, yeah. but I didn't. <laughs> still wrong, still wrong. Even though, uh, yeah, even though you might correct it, still wrong. Okay, question number seven: What is a firkin? You might know with your knowledge of uh, British brewing. It's a barrel, it's a size of a barrel. Yeah, it's a British brewing term, which is a unit of measurement that represents a quarter of a barrel. But Good. yeah, I'll let you have that. Question yeah, number eight: sure. Name of Austria's only Trappist brewery. Well, uh, Engelsal or something? Uh, yeah, could be. Ah, you're correct. I'll give it to you. It's <laughs> Stift Engelsal. And it was uh, from Engelsal Abbey, which opened in 1925. The nice thing is that Austria has quite a lot of, which I guess are closed to breweries, but not run by full-time serving believers anymore. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Salzburg, uh, Augustiner. I think that also used to be a close brewery. Mm. And that's a very charming place. It mm. fits like a few thousand people with one liter max. Wow. So, <laughs> I, when uh, writing this quiz, I saw a picture of the Trappist Brewery and it looked very charming as well. It, I think Austria looks picturesque at most of the times. Oh, and I assume, you know, I mean, uh, if you're your whole day busy with um, concentrating your thoughts and then expressing them through drinking beer. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to try. When you put it like that, it makes me really want to try the beer. Okay. Uh, da, 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 da. Question number nine. Why is an IPA known as an Indian Pale Ale? Isn't it India Pale Ale? India. India Pale Ale, yeah. Why oh, you it? got a minus. 
my pronunciation. Okay, I'll repeat the question. Why is an IPA known as an India Pale Ale, not an Indian? It was exported. Yeah. And uh, mainly to India. Yeah, that's, from that's Bert- exactly from it. From Burton, was it? From Burton on Trent. Yeah, yeah so it was, uh, that was an easy question. Pale Ale prepared for India was what it was originally coined as, and then I think it was a beer newspaper said Wh- Where are you from, UK? I'm from Sheffield. Sheffield? Yeah, Sheffield. Is there any great breweries in Sheffield? There's Abbeydale Brewing, Abbeydale. Um, which are quite well known. And then, One point for you. Yeah, one point. And then <laughs> if you go a bit further out, there's the Peak District, and then you've got Buxton, and uh, there's there's quite a few breweries in the Peak District, yeah. Abedale, they're like big Casper, you know? I think so, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, um, they are a Casper. They do a lot of Casper. There is quite a few. There's also a couple of smaller craft beers. There's like True North are there. And uh, yeah, there's quite a few now. But Abedale and Buxton are maybe one of the older ones from where I'm from. Okay, and now we are on uh, question number 10, the last question. The old German beer style Bräuhan is an ancestor of what style? Ancestor. Yeah. So, okay. Trace back the family tree. An ancestor. Yeah. Well, I mean, Germany doesn't really do styles. So yeah, so it's quite poignant that I finished on a question about style, yeah, yeah. and uh, uh, you might contest uh, would, the answer. Maybe compare it to one. Uh, yeah. I, like uh, I'd love to know how often we mention style today. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know. I'll do a tally. <laughs> yeah, you do it at the end of the show, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you do a quick count, and then you just flash yeah, it up. Yeah. Today's okay. hot word. Which, and then style. we take a guess. Each of us takes a guess once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it might get you a bonus point in the leaderboard. But... Well, uh, Brojan, that's the North German style, uh, North German type of beer. Yeah. Um, so it must be a North German follow-up. And um, Brojan, that's 18th century, around 17th century. And it's quite an acidic beer type. Yeah. Um, just seeing the cogs work inside yeah, his head here. This is pretty, pretty good. No, but we talked about doing a bro, Jan, and I mean, Erkan has done quite some research and... Yeah. Um, I did think we actually did have a Broyan once, right? Like a Broyan yeah, approximate. Pseudo Broyan. Yeah, an approximate. Yeah. Um, but then what is it an ancestor of? You were very close in the process there, I think, to getting it. Yeah, but I'm also just trying to think. I mean, if you think about German acidic <laughs> beers, you think about them regionally, right? Because, yeah. I mean, all these German beer types, they're yeah. regional. It's a commonly used style today. Um, I mean, like commonly used, the only one that's really around is Gosa, but Gosa goes like quite a bit further down yeah like i mean that's in the harz region as it migrated to leipzig yeah. like the 19th century so um, i'm gonna have to rush you i need an answer here yeah good well <laughs> Alina Weisser. Alina Weisser. yeah well i guess it's the most acidic type but yeah uh, aircon is correct that's what i've got written down yeah it's a north german pale ale which has a whiny aroma so that's why they say it's an ancestor of it oh but uh, that's, that's reached true. the end of the quiz. So I have a feeling these guys have done pretty well. It, well, yeah, for sure. Uh, seven points. Seven points. Yeah, and I feel so. a bit shame about that 1862 because, you know, yeah. should have known that. And, <laughs> you yeah, also that got means... a little bit of help with the Berliner Weiss. So, yeah, well, in the end. You also were too. So uh, I'm going to put you below Matthias Mat- yeah. because it was he was just on his own. But well yeah. played, guys. That was really, really good. And just to finish off, thank you very much for joining us on this miserable Tuesday evening. It's been a pleasure talking to you and thanks for the beer and uh, best of luck with everything. Thanks to Bass. Yeah, super good uh, to uh, hear your talk. I think you have a fascinating 
approach to beer. Super good. Definitely. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. See you soon. So, thanks for listening to another episode of Radio Oedipus. Thank you to Bas Visser and a huge thanks to Jan and Erkan. If you are in Amsterdam, head to their brewery or their bar to sample some of their tasty brews. Remember to check out the show notes for more information. And like I said at the beginning, you can discover more about Radio Oedipus over on our website, oedipus.com forward slash radio. Also, like and subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. The address to get in contact with me is radio at oedipus.com. Music on today's show was written and composed by Ola I Music. And tune in next time for more explorations into the culture of beer.